Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC Vegas 13, headlined by Tiago Santos and Glover Teixeira in a pivotal light heavyweight bout. Um, unfortunately, it's not going to be for the number one contender to Jan Blachowicz, since Dana White just announced that uh, Israel Adesanya is moving up to 205 to try to capture a second title. But still, nonetheless, I think that the winner of this fight finds themselves to be the next contender whenever uh, those guys decide to 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 fight. Um, but it's still a fight that I'm very much looking forward to. I know a lot of people are excited to see Tiago Mahata Santos step back into the cage, as am I. I think uh, it should be a really fun fight, um, and it could be interesting to see how... Um, Sorry, I'm trying to pull out my best fight odds here so I can give you guys a quick intro in terms of what I think about the card. But yeah, it should be good to see how he comes back and reacts. And he's a minus 230 favorite as of right now. A lot of people are really in belief of Tiago Santos after coming back from a pretty severe ACL injury. But I'll get into that during the breakdowns for this fight. But the, the rest of the card, not too bad. We got Brendan Allen against Ian Heinrich in a very, very close fight, hence the pick'em line there. Uh, Yan Xiaonan trying to staple herself into that the contendership of the 115-pound division against Claudia Gudela. That's a great fight. Tanner Bozer trying to take another step forward as well against Andre Arlovsky. The return of King Kong Romanov uh, fighting Mar- Marcos Hajurio de Lima. That was a fight that was supposed to happen back in September. Uh, Bavon Lewis versus Trevin Giles. Meh. Uh, Kali Taha versus Hauni Barcelos should be a great fight. I'm really much looking forward to that. I love me some Barcelos, and I can't wait to see him continue to ascend uh, in, in his division there. So, I, I yeah, solid card. Good fights all around. Uh, a couple of snoozers, potential there you know i mean i'm not going to call them out right away but uh yeah uh, overall i don't mind this card for a fight night and again obviously we get a pretty high level uh light heavyweight belt to top it all off so uh, solid card coming up for sure uh before we get into breakdowns let's do a quick recap of ufc vegas 12 uh where we ended up very very slightly in the green um but thanks to you know a couple of degenerate parlays and all that i still end up pretty good on the night i'm happy with uh how the night went considering pretty much every single favorite one except one but uh, let's start off at the top. Let's start off with the lock of the night play. I had Sean Strickland minus 245 for five units. I hit that a week before the event. Uh, that's the advantages people have for being on the Patreon because they get some of these lines that might get steamed come fight week. So if you're on the Patreon, if you're on Team MMA LOT and Patreon, uh, you guys get all the heads up for, for the spots that I'm looking at uh, when the lines are a lot better. So uh, make sure you guys check that out. But yeah, uh, Sean Strickland goes in there, does what he does. I was hoping that he'd go for the takedowns a little bit more, try to get Marchman down and maybe, uh, you know, try to submit him, use his brown belt. He didn't give a shit at all. You know, he wanted to test out his stand up against a heavy, a heavy hitter against Jack Marshman. And Jack pretty much ate every single thing that Sean Strickland threw at him. Uh, but Strickland still goes out there and gets a solid decision victory. So good win there. Uh, dog of the night play. We had uh, under two and a half in that Strickland and Marshman fight. Obviously, like I said, Jack Marshman did not fall. Fall, Jack, fall. Just as Sean Strickland wanted him to, uh, screaming pretty much that entire fight. Uh, so that goes by the wayside. Uh, I will say a little bit of an asterisk. I was going to be playing the under two and a half for Priscilla Cashware and Courtney Casey. That was at like plus 215, plus 220. I thought that had a solid chance of hitting. Unfortunately, 
Priscilla Keshwar, I think, uh, has uh, weight cutting issues or something. And uh, that fight gets canceled on weigh-in day. So that kind of sucks. And then lastly, uh, or at least I should say second lastly, I had a parlay of uh, Alexander Hernandez and Andre Feely. Hernandez goes out there and absolutely squashes Chris Grutzbacher with a beautiful combination, beautiful footwork, beautiful striking. And Hernandez is definitely back now. And then Feely goes out there and, uh, yeah, going 1-1 into that third round. Bryce Mitchell took it to that extra gear, got the takedowns that he needed to grind at Andre Feely, and he looked great. Um, I always questioned Bryce Mitchell's cardio. I will never, I won't question it in a three-rounder any longer. In a four-rounder, or sorry, in a five-rounder, I would like to see what it looks like then. But in a three-rounder, it seems like he has that extra gear to go out there, get the takedowns needed, and, uh, you know, uses jiu-jitsu effectively to be able to uh, capture a third round. So good one for Bryce Mitchell there. Unfortunate loss for us there, minus one unit. Uh, so all in all for Vegas 12, we're plus 0.04 units. Very, very minimal. But leading into UFC Vegas 13, I do have a live parlay right now. So I did have Adrian Yanez, who hit. Kevin Holland, who hit. Both of them, very, very easy. Let's just call it what it is. And I have them all parlayed up with Tanner Bozer, who fights uh, on this car, upcoming card. So I have that two units at minus 110. I love the line on that. Obviously, I knew Yanez and Holland were pretty much a lock. Hence why I parlayed them with Bozer, who I believe uh, minus 250, not too bad of a line, uh, but I wanted to get a better line on him there. And I love the even money that I'm getting here uh, on on this parlay. So you guys will obviously hear my thoughts on Tanner Bozer versus Andre Arlovsky later in this episode. So make sure you guys stick around for that. Uh, but yeah, plus 0.04 units on Vegas 12 with a pending parlay. I'm okay with that. It's still green. It's not red. And that's what we're always trying to avoid. So decent UFC Vegas 12. Um, happy that the lock of the night plays are hitting nice and consistently now. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that's really about it. Before I get into the breakdowns here, I do want to plug the Patreon as always. The numbers are killing it. We're up to the 120s, 130s. I'm My goal is 200. I know we're going to hit 200 eventually. How quickly? I'm not sure. Um, but I know the more that we win, uh, the more exposure your boy gets that the sooner that will hit that patreon number that i'm trying to get to so uh shout out to everybody on that again just a reminder for nobody for anybody that's on that uh, or not on that and on the bubble of getting on it uh you guys get early access to all the breakdowns that you guys are about to see as you will see there were previously recorded so as soon as i finish recording them i drop them on the patreon so they get first access to it i also let you guys know what my leans are nice and early as soon as the odds drop so even if there's some solid value before i actually get down to researching it uh you guys could you know take advantage of the lower limits at times especially if there's egregious uh lines out there or opening lines i should say um you guys get all the official bets, even when I'm charging the public. And then lastly, you guys get a best bets and props article where I let you know uh, the best bet and prop for every single fight on the card. That usually comes out Friday evenings. Uh, but yeah, people love it. It's a ton of value you guys get for five bucks a month. Very, very cheap. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm not trying to undervalue my work or anything like that. But I understand that people don't want to break the bank either to get solid betting advice. And that's what I'm trying to prove to you guys uh, and provide to you guys. And I know I can get a big enough group together to allow me to make this a full-time thing so five bucks a month help your boy out uh and you guys can continue to get access and once i'm able to break the chains of my nine to five you bet your ass i'm going to add more content to the patreon once i am able to get more more time for myself 
and lastly, I swear to God, lastly, before I jump into the breakdowns, I want to give a sh- quick shout out to Odds HQ who brought me on this past week uh, for their Friday stream with Cody Saftik, MMA guru or predictions guru, and um, Just Bleed MMA. Those guys are fantastic. I'm pretty much a permanent spot there now. That that seat is mine now. So I'm going to be uh, on every Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern with those guys, breaking down the final weigh-in, uh, giving our final thoughts on the cards. Make sure you guys check us out on Odds HQ. We're always going to be there Friday evening. I can't wait to do it. It's a live stream as well, too. So you guys can hop in on the chat and try to interact as much as possible. Um, and then, obviously, my own MMA Lockcast uh, live that I do. That's going to be every fight day now, 1 p.m. Eastern, every single fight day, doing a one-hour live stream, just answering all questions, comments, last-minute things that you guys have. Uh, it's a fun, interactive way. It's pretty much a fa- uh, a show all about you guys. You guys make the show by the comments and questions and everything that you guys submit through the live chat. So be sure to join me every fri- or every fight day, I should say, at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, I'll always be tweeting out the link, so make sure you guys check that out. All right. I'm just going to shut up. Let's get into the breakdowns. That's what you guys are here for. Let's get into this. Max Griffin versus Ramiz Brahimaj. We got minus 165 on Max Griffin and plus 145 on Brahimaj. Uh, Griffin opened up roughly around minus 195 and now he's down to minus 165. Fight doesn't go to decision is plus 125. And if you know anything about Ramiz Brahimaj, that guy does not like going to a decision. Um, he's won... So he's eight and two, uh, and all eight wins have come via submission. Um, he's always seeking the choke, like he's always seeking uh, any type of submission. But he loves his guillotine choke. He loves the arm triangle choke, um, and it's always it's always fun to see him go out there and try to pull off those uh, those types of submissions. Um, it's been a while since he's been in the cage, though. So the last time he fought was March of 2019. Uh, now here we up coming. What is that? Um, eight plus twelve. We got twenty month layoff, uh, and not to his. You know, it's not obviously his fault. He was actually scheduled to fight Miguel Beza um, on the contenders race in 2019. He had to pull out due to injury. Then he was called in uh, to fight Takashi Sato, uh, June. Uh, on the Poirier and uh, Hooker card. Uh, unfortunately, he had to pull up because of his uh, cornerman testing positive for COVID. And now here he is back once again, four months later, five months later, I should say, close to five months later, uh, since he just booked to fight Takashi Sato against Max Griffin. Um, yeah, I don't like when guys are off the, out of the cage for that long. You know what I mean? Especially when they're coming in to make their UFC debut, especially against a guy as experience as and as skilled as max griffin so that that's a that's a no-no right off the bat um a positive i will give him he's trained or he's training over there at fortis mma who in my opinion is one of the higher uh you know ranked uh gyms in the world right now maybe not have a super camp like the the jacksons or the att's of the world but they do have quality head coaches and quality bodies and sparring partners as well for those guys to go out there and get some solid experience and practice in the in the training room uh this fight's a tough one for for Ramiz, you know um <coughs> excuse me um so the last time he went to a decision he lost to justin patterson um we saw his gas tank start to fail him in that second round and when i see guys that have gas tank issues no matter how many times they've gone out there and finished the fight it gives me some issues especially when you're talking about a guy uh going up against max griffin who hasn't been submitted in his or in his career at all i think the last time actually 
I may be wrong on that. He did get, yeah, sorry, he got submitted in an exhibition fight for the Ultimate Fighter back in 2012 by Matt Secor via triangle choke. But he, since then, you know, the only time he lost via stoppage was to Colby Covington back in 2016. Uh, but since then, he's just been going to decisions pretty much. Um, you know, his chin has held up against heavy hitters like Curtis Millender, Tiago Alves, Alex Morono. You know what I mean? I say what you want about Morono, but he does has heavy hands for sure. Uh, and then Alex uh, Oliveira, you know, he did a good job in staying resilient in that fight, battling back after a very, very tough cut that he had to deal with too, uh, I believe, in that second round. And in that third round, we, he ends up on top after reversing Cowboy Oliveira. Unfortunately, he still comes out on the poor or the, the unfortunate end of a split decision. Um, and yeah, he's right now in his last five, he's one and four in his last five. And his only win was the majority decision over Zalim Imadayev in a fight where I believe Imadayev was, uh, had a point taken away pretty much right in the beginning of the fight. Um, yeah, I, I like Griffin. Uh, in this fight, uh, again, more experience. Uh, Ramiz, uh, I need to see a little bit more from his game rather than just being a finisher. Um, you know, I always have question marks about guys coming into the UFC where all their finishes in the past have been via, or all the wins have been by, uh, you know, early finishes. Uh, whereas guys like, you know, um, Max Griffin, he's been to the full 15 minutes. He's been the entire time where he doesn't have to worry about being finished or anything like that. I like Max Griffin here. Uh, maybe not at the minus 165 line. Um, you know, I don't think he's the, the, the shit or anything like that. But uh, I, I still need to see what we're working with Brahimaj. Um, he is a no-gi IBJJF champion. So that's something to, to, to keep your eye on as well in terms of his submission game. Uh, but I just don't see him submitting Max Griffin, who again, has not been submitted in a very long time. Um, so yeah, I like uh, Griffin to win this fight. I probably won't put any money on this fight though. Um, if anything, I wouldn't mind seeing what the, the the fight doesn't go to decision is plus 125. Maybe the under two and a half is not that bad. Um, then again, Griffin has gone to a decision a lot in his last couple of fights and I could see him kind of playing it, uh, playing it as, uh, as safe as possible. Um, yeah, especially, you know, going to a decision uh, against Cowboy Oliveira, who I believe is just as wild and chaotic as Ramiz Rahimaj can be at times. Uh, but yeah, I, I do like Max Griffin to win this fight. I'll say by third round TKO after overwhelming Rahimaj in that third. Um, but yeah, very, very tough way to, to, to get a read on this fight. But I do like Griffin via third round stoppage or even a decision victory. Darren Elkins versus Eduardo Geragori. We got minus 210 on the damage and plus 175 on Geragori. And uh, on first look, when I saw this fight uh, announced, uh, or at least when I saw the odds come out, I'm like, minus 200 or better for Elkins. Or minus 200 or worse for Elkins is a little bit of a head-scratcher. You know, you don't really see him, expect him to go out there and be a favorite or at least a super heavy favorite against pretty much anybody in the UFC. But... Once you really start to dig into the tape, then you really start to understand it. So let's start off with Darren Elkins, though. He is coming off a four-fight losing streak. That is obviously a career-worst uh, run for him. Uh, there was a point in time where he put together a solid amount of victories. Uh, Robert Whiteford, Chas Skelly, Godofredo Pepe, Mirsad Bektich, uh Dennis Bermudez, Michael Johnson. Six straight fights, six straight victories uh, with two finishes mixed in there. And now he's gone on a four-fight skid to Alexander Volkanovsky. You can't really blame him for that. Hence, Alexander Volkanovsky being the champion. Ricardo Lamos, uh, that was a tough fight for Darren Elkins where he was just pretty much out, out, 
outworked in every single aspect of that fight and every single skill. Ryan Hall, we obviously know the wizard that Ryan Hall is, and then Nate Landwehr, who was willing to go to war with Darren Elkins, and he just showed that he was a you know faster fighter, uh, had the better output, had the better shots, and again, had the better power at the end of the day, which uh, allowed for way more damage on Darren Elkins uh, than on Nate Landwehr. So that was a fun fight to watch, super, super bloody. Uh, but it showed us that Darren Elkins is uh, his um, his durability is still there. Like he ate some shots from La- Nate Landwehr, but was still cheering and running forward and was still fully in the fight. Um, I think that might scare a guy like Eduardo Garagori, who hasn't really come across a guy like uh, Darren Elkins before. You know, uh, but when it really comes to the actual skill set of each guy here, I think the one thing that's glaring on Eduardo's side is his lack of takedown defense. Uh, and that's why everybody seems so heavy on Darren Elkins here. And I completely understand it after running the tape now. You know, we saw Humberto Bandone, who's primarily a striker, go out there and try to... Um, you know, take down a Garagori, and he was successful in it, but I think that we'll see better top pressure and at least more consistent takedown attempts from Darren Elkins than we saw from Bandone, hence why Eduardo Garagori was able to keep that fight on the feet for the majority of it and do some solid damage from there. We saw Ricardo Hamos go out there, get the takedown, get the rear naked choke, and that's as simple as that but even when you go back into the earlier fights for Garagori yeah he's getting f- victories and he's undefeated on the regional scene but you do see when he's challenged in those uh, grappling realms he's a little bit more um uh you know he's not responding as well yeah he has a couple of rear naked choke victories o- over some of these guys but he's finding guys with a lot of sketchy records uh as well so when he's pulling off you know rear naked chokes against guys that are like six and 15 you kind of understand what the hell is up um the the concern here is like what I saw in the Bandanai fight, what I saw in the Carl uh, Hamos fight, is his lack of ability to really, you know, he's looking to strike uh, to defend rather than actually like digging under hooks and doing those simple technical things to get out of these bad situations. He's still training down there in Uruguay, it seems, uh, doesn't really go out there and look for other things. Going through his Instagram page, the only time he's really made a trek out or at least showcased that he's made a trek out to an, a top gym was back in 2017 when we saw him have a couple pictures down there at Novo Uniao. I'm not sure if he's really traveled to the States and try to get like work out there, but it seems like he's okay with, you know, sticking in his home base down in Uruguay. And I think that's a problem. You need to expand your, 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 the variety of looks that you're getting, the type of uh, advice that you're getting, the head coaches that you're working with. You really need to go out there and do that, especially at this high level in the MMA world. And I think this might be the rude awakening for him against Darren Elkins, where, you know, most guys should go out there and be able to beat Darren Elkins at this point in his career especially an up-and-comer like Eduardo Garagori. But I think he's going to see that the takedowns are going to be a little bit too much. The cardio is always going to be there for Darren Elkins, and the heart is always going to be there for Elkins. My concern is if, you know, this is the day that it just, like that, catches up with him, Garagori lands a bomb and just puts out Elkins with one shot. I don't think that's, that's, I don't think that's going to happen. Elkins is hittable, uh, but he's going to have to be sure to cut the, you know, Cut the distance right away uh, and start putting this fight into the grappling room because that's definitely where he's going to have the advantage. So I like Elkins here. I, li- I don't mind him at the minus 200 range. Um, possible parlay piece if you don't want to play him straight up, but he should definitely cruise here in terms of, you know, out grappling Garagori outside of, you know, getting his back taken or like getting subbed that way. I, I just don't see Elkins get, uh, finding himself in those positions. So I do like Elkins to win this fight. I think he will have the better of the grappling exchanges. Um, 
and that's what it's going to come down to. It's just a speed advantage that Garagori will have here and possible power advantage too. That makes me a little bit skeptical about Elkins. Outside of that though, I think Elkins should be able to drown Garagori here and continuously take him down and just work from on top. So I'm going with Elkins to win this fight via decision. Uh, and the minus 200 line sounds about right. So once again, Darren Elkins via decision. Marcos Hadirio de Lima versus Alexander Romanov. We got minus 275 on Alexander and plus 235 on Hadirio de Lima. So let's not forget when they were first originally scheduled to fight each other, I believe it was early September, uh, de Lima obviously pulled out to do a positive COVID test pretty much the day of the fight. Um, that line was much, much closer. And now when people actually saw Romanov go out there and have a complete smashing one-sided fight against Roki Martinez uh everybody's jumping on the Alexander Romanov train and it absolutely makes sense you know I know that Romanov is uh, a heavy favorite now uh people are seeing that he's actually able to translate you know the style that he had on the regional scene over there on the on the Asian and European side of the uh, of the world He's actually able to translate that into a UFC performance against, in my opinion, a much tougher test in Roki Martinez than Mar Marcos Hadrio de Lima would be. And I mean that in terms of durability. You know, we did see uh, Martinez survive close to a full two rounds. Uh, it was, you know, near the ending there that uh, Romanov was able to pull off that arm triangle choke. Beautiful finish there. But he, you know, from the get-go, he let it be known that he is going to continue to fight the way that he always fights. He's going to charge forward. He's going to try to get you down, whether it's a big slam or even just a small trip. He's going to get you down, and then he's going to start to king calm hammer fist you from the top. If he's not able to get the finish, he's fine with just pacing himself, landing the picking apart shots that he is around the guard. Um, you know, he's not afraid to go from full mount to side control to knee on belly to try to get the best possible angle that he can to go for the finish. And then if the punches aren't doing enough, he's going to go for a choke. And that's definitely a path to victory for him there. There is nothing that I see that Marcos Hadrid Lima can do to finish or beat Alexander Romanov. Obviously, outside of a, you know, Hail Mary one punch or anything like that, I don't see him catching uh, Romanov with a submission of any sort. I don't think he's going to be able to pull off a guillotine or anything like that. Heck, he even got guillotine choked by Gadzimurad Antigulov a couple of fights ago via guillotine. Let's, let's just remember that. That's probably one of the worst losses that you could have on your record. So to go in there against a guy like Romanov, I think he's completely outskilled, completely outmatched. And if you guys do go back and listen to my initial breakdown of this fight, I was a little bit skeptical of Romanov. I, you know, I, I didn't know if we were truly going to see what we saw on tape once he arrives to the UFC. And now I'm fully sold. Again, he did it against a much more durable fighter in Roki Martinez. Uh, and he looked great doing it too. He had absolutely no issues taking down Roki Martinez, who was chubby <laughs> that's just being nice uh so i don't think he'll have much issue taking hajurio de lima down here slamming him over his head if he wants to as well but i think this is an absolute shellacking waiting to happen for mr alexander romanov i was thinking that bozer was going to be my you know my biggest lean on this card but man alexander romanov makes it hard to not want to bet this guy so what i'm personally going to wait for is the inside the distance line to come out uh, i'm sure by the time that does come out him uh, straight at minus 275 will probably be all the way up to the minus 350 minus 400 range uh, leaving, leading me to believe that we'll probably get Romanov minus 150 or something minus 200 inside the distance and that's the line that I'm going to be trying to hammer I know I will get a better line on the inside the distance than I will on him straight so I might as well wait there's no need to to rush the pick here and again I'm recording this on the Tuesday before their fight week so there's a ton of time between now and when the props are going to drop and then obviously we'll see the line 
uh, pretty much jump uh, in that amount of time as well. So, you know, if you want to parlay him, go ahead and parlay him. But uh, he's as close to a lock of the night as you're going to get, in my opinion. So I'm really looking for, especially him inside the distance. I don't see this going 15 minutes. He doesn't look like a guy that's just, you know, walling and stalling or just trying to lay and pray or anything like that. This guy is going for the finish from bell to bell. He wants to tear your head off, pretty much, or pound your face into the canvas. He wants to do one or the other, other or even just choke you unconscious. That's another thing, too. Um, Roque Martinez got got away with a phantom tap near the ending of that first round when uh, Romanov had a pretty tight Kimura or Americana, one of those submissions, locked up. It looked really, really tight. It looked really close. And if you watch one of Roque Martinez's hands, it looked like he was about to tap. He even tapped once, it looked like. And the ref, you could see the, the shoes of the ref kind of like, you know, hesitating to go in and stop the fight because Roki only just tapped once. But either way, uh, Romanov should go out there and do absolute work against Delima. You know, Delima again has a little bit of power in his hands, has some solid leg kicks, but I don't think this fight is going to be contested much on the feet. And I think Romanov is abs- absolutely going to shit on the the level of jiu-jitsu that Hajurio Delima is going to be bringing to this fight. So I love Romanov in this spot. I think he gets it done in the first round. I yeah, I find it hard to believe. Realistically, this line should be like my is 500 let's be honest uh, yeah i don't know what people are seeing in delima uh, i'm hoping some people go out there and bet him so maybe we even get a better line on romanov but i find it really really hard to uh you know see the tape look at the tape uh and i'm not even trying to do any recency bias for romanov here yeah he looked great in the rookie martinez fight but he's looked good in every single fight the only thing i needed to see the rookie martinez fight was for was to see um you know if he was able to translate that to his ufc debut and that's when he did it that's when the ufc jitters are at their highest he was able to go out there and just perform like he always performs go out there and crush dudes and that's exactly what i'm expecting him to do here against hajurio delima who in my opinion, has a very limited path to victory. So I'm going to go with Alexander Romanov to win this fight inside the distance. I would say first round ground and proud, maybe even submission. But uh, yeah, I love him to get it done nice and early. And uh, this will, he will more than likely be involved in the lock of the night play for this for this card. So uh, yeah, Alexander Romanov via first round finish. Bevon Lewis versus Trevin Giles. We got minus 110 on both sides. It's a pick em fight. Uh, Bevan Lewis did actually open as the favorite and money has slowly come in on Trevin Giles to even it out. Um, let's start off with Bevon Lewis, who's coming off a victory over Ta- uh, Daquan Townsend. Just like his counterpart, uh, they're both uh, one and two in their last three fights on a two-fight skid and they just recently turned their uh, turned their fortunes around. Uh, so like I said with Bevon Lewis, he was doing very well in his UFC debut against Uriah Hall. We saw what it looks like when he's able to put his punches together especially at distance and even in the clinch positions he seems to have a little bit of success with like pushing his opponents up against the cage kind of charlie horsing them kneeing them controlling them in that state but then we we saw it, it could have been either ufc jitters or him just exerting too much energy in the first two rounds but we did definitely see bavon lewis slow down a little bit in that third round and that's where we saw uriah hall go out there and uh, land a beautifully timed combination that put him out and that's always been uriah hall's forte you know what i mean just 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 conserving his energy, conserving his energy, and then landing a, a big enough shot to be able to put out his opponents, just as we saw this past weekend against Anderson Silva. 
And then in the Darren Stewart fight, we saw Darren Stewart, you know, way more uh, comfortable in the striking range compared to what Bavon Lewis was doing, uh, especially with those low kicks. Darren Stewart was doing a lot of solid work there, um, you know, solid work up against the cage too. It seemed like Bavon was a little bit out strength there. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we definitely saw Bavon Lewis uh, stumble there. And then in Daquan Townsend, you know, Townsend is strictly in the UFC to to give, the, you know, do the jobber uh, role of for most of these guys. And he did exactly that for Bavon Lewis. We didn't see any urgency out of Townsend. He never really had any success in that fight. We saw Bevan have solid success from landing uh, on the outside, really, really in the distance that he's comfortable from. Uh, but the majority of that fight was him just trying to play it as safe as possible, push Daquan up against the cage and kind of just, you know, outwork him there, landing little shots, landing knees, whatever it is, just to, to stay busy uh, and really chip away and grab some points against Daquan Townsend, hence why he came out on the other end with a, a decisive uh, decision victory there. Decisive decision? That sounds like some Mike Goldberg shit. But uh, yeah, you know, he doesn't do anything that really blows my hair back either, you know. I like his range. I like his size. Um, he seemed to have potential, but I think he, you know he's not really going to be a top fifteen, top ten type of guy. Uh, but yet, he seems to have a little bit more promise than what Trevin Giles brings to the cage. So with Trevin Giles, uh, like I said, just uh, just like Bavon Lewis, one and three in his last two. Uh, most recently, coming over a split decision victory over James Cross. Where let's not forget. That night, uh, Trevin Giles was actually supposed to fight Antonio Ahoyo. Ahoyo pulls out due to weight cutting issues, and in steps James Cross, who was there that night, I believe, to uh, to he was supposed to corner somebody else that night. I want to say Alex Morono, but I might be off on that. Uh, yeah, he was supposed to be there to to corner Yusuf Zalal actually, and uh, in he steps in now uh, against Trevin Giles and uh, put on a solid performance. Like arguably, you could give that fight. To James Krause, um, you know, there's there's a lot of people out there that thought that was especially a James Krause fight, and the sketchiest of them all was the round one being scored for Trevin Jaws by one of the judges. I think it was Joe Solis, who, uh, you know, if people actually start to look into it a little bit more, and it turned out that Joe Solis has a little bit of a, a tie to Trevin Giles. So that's a little bit sketchy in itself. So arguably, you could say that Trevin Giles is 0-3 in his last three and probably shouldn't even be getting a fourth shot in the UFC. You know, I was a little bit underwhelmed with his uh, performance in the third round against a guy who literally took the fight on less than 24 hours notice um he seemed a little bit gassed himself and i thought james Krause did enough to win that third round so you know one and three easily james kraus uh and round two obviously trevin giles but i was not impressed at all what i saw with trevin giles um you know he always seems to have little slip-ups in the third round zach cummings gerald mearshart um, he did before the Zach Cummings fight. He did want to fight in the third round against Antonio Braganeto. That was back in December of 2017. So we're talking about three years ago. But uh, yeah, I don't know what it is. He seems to be on a little bit of a decline. Uh, Bevan Lewis, 29, coming into this. Uh, yeah, wow. Trevin Giles is 28. So uh, one year advantage for for Bevan Lewis in terms of experience or at least age, I should say. But um, yeah, neither guy does much to really make me want to go out there and risk money on them you know what i mean like i could see both guys dropping this um 
the side that I feel most comfortable with after looking through the tape and all that is actually the Bevan Lewis side, and that kind of that's weird to say. Um, you know, I, I've I've lost faith in Bevan Lewis. I've lost faith in Trevin Giles. I, mean, I wouldn't trust either of them with my money here. But you guys are here to to figure out who I would uh, you know predict to win. Uh, and I'd have to go with Bevan Lewis. You know, I think he would have the better of the exchanges from the outside uh, in terms of like distance striking, mixing some kicks, mixing some punches, you know, start using that footwork, get Trevin Giles working. You know what I mean? Push him up against the cage, knee him just like you did at Daquan Townsend and just how you had some success against uh, Uriah Hall, the same thing. Use that type of game plan. Um, you know, Trevin Giles is a purple belt on the ground, so I'm not sure if you'd want to try to drag this to the ground and, and see what Bevan Lewis has off of his back. We haven't seen too much of that in the UFC, but uh, I still think it's going to be Bevan Lewis. I wouldn't, uh, again, I wouldn't risk any money on it myself. I do think that Bevan Lewis will be the one getting the better from the distance striking, the clinch positions. He should be able to keep it on the feet. And I I could see Trevin Giles being a little bit more gassed than uh, Lewis come the third round, and that's where we'll see Lewis really start to implement his strength and that clinch position to, to secure a victory. So, um, yeah, very, very tough fight to call. Um, another one, you know, the, the, there's... Uh, Brendan Allen against uh, Ian Heinrich later in this card, which is just as tough to call. But with, with these guys are definitely lower level than them, and I'll say that. Uh, and I'll say also that uh, Bevan Lewis deserves the victory here. So I'm going to say Bevan Lewis to win this fight via decision, but not with the utmost confidence. Giga Chikadze versus Jamie Simmons. We got minus 485 on Giga Chikadze and plus 350 on the UFC newcomer, Jamie Simmons. Uh, why they made this fight, I have absolutely no idea. The only thing I could come up with is the fact that um, this fight uh, card was at 10 fights. Uh, they had Felipe Calerish and Gustavo Lopez fall out. So they wanted to keep it at 10 fights or at least at 11. Um and yeah, it makes absolutely no sense as to why they signed Jamie Simmons. So let's start off with Jamie Simmons. He's on a two-fight winning streak. Uh, he got two quick victories in November and December of last year. Uh, quick finishes, both of them coming with pretty much within a minute. 36 seconds for the first one, a minute and four seconds for the other one. But uh, the there unfortunately is no tape on the, the second last fight. I do have uh, footage on his uh, Cody Garnes fight. Uh, Terrence Almond and then Morgan Sickinger, which is his last fight. Let's go quickly one by one. The Cor Cody Garnes one, uh, that one looked like the kid just was out of his league. Um, you know, Jamie Simmons goes out there, slams the kid, uh, and it looks like his head kind of hits the canvas, and he's kind of not out, but like pretty much given up at that point. And we see uh, Jamie Simmons follow up with some ground and pound to get the victory there. And then the Terrence Allman fight, like he just pretty much ranked all that guy. But there were some sketchy moments when, uh, you know, Allman was able to reverse positions pretty much with no technique. He just like um, pretty much strengthened his way out of it. It was pretty much or muscled his way out of it. There's no way that uh, there was any technique used in that. But uh, for the most part, Jamie Simmons was the one on top doing some solid, solid damage. So he was able to go out there and get the decision victory uh, the after that he got need in 13 seconds at lfa then he goes on his two-fight winning streak and then the the most recent one i have is morgan sickinger where um yeah sick like it, there's only a minute of footage so it's not a lot to get into there but uh that was uh as soon as jamie landed a, a big shot it seemed like morgan wanted out of there and jamie was able to get the victory um 
Let's talk a little bit more about Jamie. So, so his background is wrestling, and I did go through his, uh, uh, like I googled his name with his wrestling background, and I found uh, something from the University of Wisconsin, I believe it is. Let me see if I can pull that up for you guys one more time. Probably should have had that ready to go, but uh, here we go. University of Wisconsin. Um, so what they have on Jamie Simmons is uh, they have his high school. They say he's a three-time letter winner, three-time first-time all-conference wrestler, two-time state qualifier, highest finish was fourth, uh, hold school record for takedowns in a season and career and most wins in a career. Uh, only athlete to be first team all conference in three sports, football, wrestling, and baseball for two consecutive years. And then he has the highest winning percentage in school history, which is 118 and 14 in wrestling. Then in his 2011-2012 campaign at University of Iowa, he went 4-5 and five at 149 pounds, finished third uh, in the Wisconsin states, I want to call it, I believe it is. And then in 2012-2013, he wrestled at 157 pounds and finished the season with the 22-12 and 12 record second team All-Wisconsin honoree. So um, it's obvious that he wants to go out there and wrestle. That's kind of his game plan. Unfortunately for him, like he's he's been he hasn't really found his weight class. And given his size, he's standing at five foot five. He should probably be a one thirty five er. And he has actually fought down at one thirty five before. Um, I believe uh, that was a while back though. Like he hasn't fought at one thirty five since. Let's see. Uh, Cody Garnis was at 155. The Terrence Almond fight, so that was the fight that he won via decision. Uh, that was down at 135. Then his LFA fight was at 145. Uh, 155 for the next fight after that, and then back to 145. So he's like up and down, and obviously he's making his UFC debut now at 145 pounds against Giga Chikadze, who's a six foot, 145 pounder. Six foot with 74 inch reach. Obviously, we don't have a reach yet on Jamie Simmons, but he's 5'5". So he's dealing with a pretty significant height disadvantage. Just for reference, if you guys gonna want to go watch it, Giga Chikaze versus Erwin Rivera. Erwin Rivera was 5'6". So that's just something to think about there. Uh, but yeah, Giga Chikaze should absolutely style on this kid. Um, you know, maybe he gets a takedown at the f in the first round, but it doesn't seem like he has the cardio to deal with a guy like Giga Chikaze. Yeah, he's gotten a decision victory over a guy that was 5-5. Five and five. Let's not read too much into that. Um, I think he's going to have a much more difficult time, one, closing the distance because he's going to have to eat a lot of kicks, a lot of punches, a lot of you know knees up the middle. He's going to have to eat a lot of those to try to get to the legs of Giga Chikaze and try to get him down. And then Giga, like say what you want about him just being a kickboxer. He's done a really good job of getting back to his feet whenever he gets taken down or or even slips or something like that. Like we saw in the Omar Morales fight, we saw Giga Chikadze try to pull off a judo throw of some sort, you know, fails on that, drops, and Morales gets back on top of him. And uh, we see Giga Chikadze use the cage very, very well, get back to his feet, and didn't really allow Omar Morales to land much from the top position either. So... Um, even the Jamal Emers fight, if you want to go back to that fight, you know, he got taken down in that fight, but we we see him, you know, get back to his fit, even reverse Jamal Emers too. That was very, very impressive in my opinion. So this is one of those spots where I was like, okay, another late minute fight put together. Um, 
it, like Giga Chikadze wasn't really even scheduled to fight anybody here. Uh, so I was kind of surprised as to why uh, he took the fight on roughly a, a week's notice. Like this got pretty much put together uh, a week before the fight, seven days before the fight that this got put together. So um, not sure why Giga wanted to take it, probably just get another paycheck. Um, you know, this would be his third fight in the COVID era, all within six months. So good for him to be able to go out there and get three solid paychecks. And it's looking like he's probably going to pick up a performance of the night bonus as well, too. You know, I mean, I think this is the first time we're going to see Giga Chikadze get a finish inside the octagon, uh, and it's taken him five fights now to get to it. But I think this is the perfect matchup for him to go out there and get it. So uh, I don't think Jamie Simmons has the cardio to go all 15 minutes. You know, he's going to be struggling to try to get Giga down, and then he's just going to eat a bunch of shots on the way in. So it's going to be really tough for him to close the distance. Uh, Giga currently minus 485. I expect that to get up even higher. I'd like to see what the uh, inside the distance looks like. Um, for the fight to not go to decision is currently minus 195. I expect that to get a little bit juicier too. Um, if I can get Giga Chikadze better than minus 200 to, to win inside the distance, I'm probably going to take at least a two-unit shot on that to, to profit one unit. I think this is a... Uh, a surefire spot just as good as you know adrian yanez over uh, victor rodriguez last week and even charlie Ontiveros losing to kevin holland i think it's it's kind of that level with giga chikadze being able to get a finish here the, see erwin rivera a lot of people might give uh giga chikadze flack for not being able to being able to finish him but this jamie simmons guy is not erwin rivera level and you know erwin rivera is like just ufc level jamie simmons has not fought anybody near ufc level and he's going to be in for a really rude awakening when he steps in there against a high level uh fighter like giga chikadze uh yeah i i'm expecting giga chikadze probably by like a highlight reel finish here so uh, i like giga i'm going to take him to one inside the distance whether it's first or second round uh, i truly think he gets it done i don't see him playing you know with his food and uh, playing playing patty cake from the outside i truly think that we'll see him catch jamie on the way in uh and get a beautiful finish so i'm going with either giga chikadze first or second round finish claudia godella versus yan Xiaonan. we got minus 135 on yan and plus 115 on claudia godella let's start off with claudia godella who's coming off a victory over uh, angela hill that allowed her to start a two-fight winning streak here now uh before that obviously she'd be around to marcos back at ufc 239 but before that she lost to nina anzaroff at ufc 231 which was uh, a little bit of an alarming uh, loss for her you know before that she's only ever lost to girls like uh uh, Jessica Andraj and Yuani and Jacek so that Nina Anzaroff one was kind of sticking out uh, a little bit more than than it should have uh, not trying to say anything bad about Nina Anzaroff but a lot of people expected Godella to go out there and just kind of wipe them out with her she even went into that fight I believe as a minus 330 favorite or something like that it was something crazy and then I remember Nina Anzaroff pulling off that victory um Anzaroff did a solid job of keeping the fight on the feet she did get taken down a couple times but when she was on the feet she was the one dishing out the damage especially in that third round where we saw her pretty much lighting Godella up with her jab and a leg kick that's pretty much all it was like she was just jabbing her face off uh keeping the the consistency finding the proper timing to counter her um and getting out of the way of the big shots and obviously stuffing takedowns too that's one thing that we've kind of seen from claudia Godella as her ufc career has gone on and for the majority of her ufc career actually her third rounds are definitely not her strongest she you know 
uh, two judges did end up giving her the third round in the Angela Hill fight, which uh, got her that split decision there. But it was a sketchy one. It was it was really close. Um, you know, I do think she did some good damage there. But uh, Angela Hill, man, she just makes fights way closer than they should be because she's throwing shots out there, but it, they don't look like they have anything on them. And at the end of the day, I think that's truly the issue for her there. So, um, yeah, it was a solid fight for Gadella, but we do see the continuous decline in her career. And now she's going up against, a, you know, a, an up-and-comer who's pretty much, you know, at that point where she can no longer be a prospect. She's going out there, uh, you know, hasn't lost a fight since her third ever fight. And now uh, is on a, what is it, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten fight winning streak. Um or if you want to call it undefeated in her last 11, she did have a no contest against Emi Fujino due to a clash of heads. Uh, but yeah, last time around, we saw her go out there and absolutely batter Karolina Kovalkovich. It was almost sad to see Karolina the next day. You know, she posted something on Instagram, uh, how she was sad and she was like all lumped up and crying and stuff. Probably one of the worst beatings she's ever taken in her career. And all thanks to Yan Xiaonan. You know, we, we know that uh, Yan's game plan is pretty much uh trudge forward solid footwork as well too but she's going to throw in combinations and she's going to throw hard with every single shot you know that's something that a lot of fighters lack is that yeah they're throwing combinations but they don't really throw too hard with it yeah and she she throws a lot of power in the shots and i think that really separates her from uh, a lot of the the fighters out there Claudia Gadella, you know, she has decent stand-up. We do see her in that first round against Jessica Andrade, land some great shots, even bust up Andrade with a beautiful, uh, I believe it was an overhand right. But, uh, you know, she, she has good technique. Her issue is being able to sustain that over 15 minutes. And that's where I think it's where Yan's, you know, her style and her pressure and uh, her striking is just going to be a little bit too much for Gadella here. Um, I do believe like when fighters do that Kia thing like Holly Holm and how Michelle Watterson pulled it out so sneakily in the last minute and a half of her fight against Angela Hill, I think it really does have a little bit of an effect on the judges because they believe that, okay, they're doing these loud things. That means that they're, you know, landing a little bit more aggressively. And I don't want to say that's always the case for Yan Jeonan. She's always landing heavy, whether she's doing the Kia's or not. More often than not, she's doing the Kia's. But what I'm saying is that Yan more often than not lands super heavy and i think that's going to cause issues for Gadella here um i wouldn't be surprised to see Gadella get the takedown in the first round but one thing that we have noticed with Gadella is when she does get fights to the ground she doesn't really do a really good job of keeping fighters there fighters do a solid job of getting back to their feet and then Gadella just you know exerts a little bit more energy than she needs to to keep these fighters down and then it you know really messes with her sustainability of her gas tank for the majority of the 15 minutes um the the fight where uh, the the fight with Yan Xiaonan and Angela Hill that one's been pretty heavily deb debated and even when uh, Angela Hill went on the Joe Rogan podcast Joe Rogan was just all on her side he's like oh I thought you won that fight I thought you won that fight it obviously came down to round three um, and I thought that Yan did the better of the striking in terms of like more output um, I think it was DC that commented on it and saying that you know Angela Hill's looking for that one shot kill whereas Yan Xiaonan's going with the activity aspect of it. And again, it is activity, but it is damage too because she's landing heavy. Like that's a you know a constant theme you're going to hear throughout this breakdown is the 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 level of power that Yan goes out there and tries to throw with. Um, 
they did say that she moved over to uh, to to Vegas to do a, a little bit of work there. How she even went to the Floyd Mayweather gym to to figure out how to like you know generate more power with her punches. Uh, but you know if you go through her Instagram account as well a little bit, you'll notice that she's gone over to Team Alpha Male. She's in Vegas. Uh, she's doing a little bit of work there too. Uh, that was from early October. Um, and she did post something recently saying that she just landed in Vegas and I'm trying to figure out whether she means like, okay, landed from Vegas from China or landed in Vegas from Sacramento or wherever she was doing work in the States because she doesn't post that often. So you you don't really get to, to see that, but it is, uh, it is promising to see her go out there and actually, uh, you know, get different looks, uh, get good looks, um, I think uh, also the the whole Team Alpha Male thing comes from the partnership with Song Yudong, uh, who we do see in a couple of her Instagram posts as well too. But um, it's very promising for Yan Xiaonan to go out there and get different looks and and try to pick up a couple of different things. But I think if she sticks to her bread and butter of you know just marching opponents down and just landing combinations, and that's the difference. Like there's a difference between like you know, marching opponents down and just throwing winging hooks, kind of like uh, John Phillips. It's funny how I bring up John Phillips in pretty much every fucking episode, but it's it's pertinent. Like, you see the different skills. And then there's uh, then there's Yan Jianan, who, you know, marches forward, but she's throwing heavy combinations and not just hooks. She's throwing jabs. She's throwing um, uppercuts. She's, she's throwing a ton of shots, and it really frustrates her opponents who are trying to close distance themselves too, but then whenever they do, they're running into these heavy shots of Yan Jianan. So I think it's unfortunately going to break claudia um you know people keep talking about claudia godella's jiu-jitsu game she's only subbed one person in the last 10 years you know i mean her only uh, submission victory came over carolina kovakovic uh but you know and then the majority of her submissions actually came in the first five or six uh, fights in her uh, professional mma career which we all know that's kind of a you know, we do, we kind of overlook that, especially when you get this far into your pro MMA career. So I do like Yan Jianan still. Uh, I think she's going to get it done probably by decision. I wouldn't be surprised at third round finish. Um, you know, I was I, I did poke a little bit on her to finish Karolina Kovakovic, and we were really really close to that. The doctor could have easily stopped that based off of all the trouble that Carolina was having with her eye. Um, but yeah, I'll see what the round three prop is for Yan Jianan here. But I, I do like her to 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 get the victory. Um, you know, we did see Gadella have a little bit of success uh, in that third run against Angela Hill. Again, heavily contested, but uh, I think she's going to get a lot more discouraged when she's feeling the power coming back her way compared to what Angela Hill was throwing at her. So once again, I'm taking Yan Zhaonan, uh either by third round finish or by decision, but I do like her in this spot. Um, yeah, if she does get taken down in that first round, that could get a little bit sketchy. But I think after that, it's going to be harder and harder for Gadella to get her down. And even if she gets her down, I think it's going to be even harder for her to keep Yan Xiaonan down. And that's another positive as to why I think that Yan went over to Team Alpha Male to get solid looks when it comes to these wrestlers too. So that's something that she should be able to uh, take into this fight and should help and benefit her too. So lastly, uh, I love the line on her too. Currently at minus 135, which is great. Um, I'm probably going to play her. Uh, I'll see and I'll wait and see if you know the the name value of Claudia Godella really uh, helps shorten that line even more. But even at this point, I like Yan Jana and I even like her all the way up to minus one fifty. To be honest, minus one seventy even uh, I don't mind that either. Uh, but yeah, minus one thirty five is a great line on Yan Jana. And so lastly, let's wrap it up. I got Yan Jana either third round TKO or decision. Ian Heinish versus Brendan Allen. 
This line is pretty much out of pick'em now. So we had Brendan Allen open up around the minus 150 range, and uh, it's slowly come down. And uh, as of today, which is Sunday before fight week, um, it's a pick'em. It, and it makes absolute sense because both guys are, uh, you know, they, they have a style that... Uh, it pretty much puts puts them on par with one another. So let's start off with Brendan Allen, who's coming on a or who has a crazy streak going right now. His last loss was to Anthony Hernandez, which was a five round war in LFA for the title over there. Uh, that was a great fight. Uh, obviously, uh, Brendan Allen came up on the short end there, and that's when we really got like the the legit fluffy. Anthony Hernandez, who unfortunately doesn't find himself in the UFC anymore. But uh, if we saw that Anthony Hernandez in the UFC, we would see him be easily a top 15 uh, guy. But his durability just was not up to par in the UFC. Uh, but that was a great back and forth fight. Um, and then after that, it took about two more fights for us to see uh, Brendan Allen go out there and get the LFA title. Uh, fought three times for LFA after that Anthony Hernandez fight. Got onto the contender series uh, and then went out there, beat... Uh, Aaron Jeffrey, rear naked choke in the first round. And then we saw him go out there beat Kevin Holland, Tom Breeze, and Kyle Jalkis. The latter being a late rate a late replacement for Ian Heinish, uh, who had withdrawn from that fight. So that was back in June, and then they decided to still go out there and continue to book this fight with Heinish. I believe there was like a long-standing rivalry between the two guys because they were both in LFA. They were close to fighting each other, uh, and then Heinish gets the call up to the UFC, and then Brendan Allen obviously follows shortly thereafter. Both guys are tremendously talented. Obviously, Brendan Allen is rolling a little bit more now since he hasn't really caught an L in the UFC. Uh, his fight against Kevin Holland, he was close to catching that first L. Um, you know, Kevin Holland had him in some pretty tough spots in that first round, and uh, Brendan Allen persevered. He he, you know, he fought through that uh, very nasty cut that Kevin Holland was able to open up on him, and then we eventually got that rear naked choke in the second round. Uh, the Tom Breeze fight, Tom Breeze had a little bit of a gaffe. You know, he tried getting this fight to the ground, uh, tried dragging it to the ground, and then eventually found himself on his back. And then uh, Brendan Allen did some solid work there in terms of trying to pull off submissions. After ditching the submissions, he went out with some ground and pound to finish off that first round, and uh, he got a finish with 13 seconds left in that first round. So that was a big win for him, too, against Tom Breeze, who, you know, in my opinion, is one of the top fighters in that division. And then the Kyle Douglas fight, man, that was that was close. Those first two rounds, he did a lot of good work with his elbows uh, from on top. Uh, obviously, both guys were primarily jiu-jitsu guys, uh, but we did see Brendan Allen get the better of it in the first two rounds. In the third round, though, we saw Kyle Douglas pretty much control that uh, have back control for the majority of that third round until maybe the last 20 or 30 seconds where Brendan Allen was able to spin out and land some pretty big shots to finish off the fight there. So I thought Brendan Allen won that uh, won that fight 29-28, closer than it should have been, uh, especially you know going up against a UFC newcomer who, albeit was undefeated coming into the UFC, so I don't think it was too bad of a, a fight for him. But the Ian, Ian Heinrich fight is going to be a little bit tougher. Um, you know, Heinrich... Uh, is coming off a victory over Gerald Mearshaw where he knocked him out within just over a minute. Uh, but before that was on a two-fight skid to Derek Brunson and Omari Akhmedov. Uh, I did have Ian Heinish as a heavy play against Derek Brunson as I truly thought he was the truth. Didn't turn out that way. Uh, Brunson got the better of him there. Same with Omari Akhmedov. Uh, uh, but, you know, one thing that I found with Ian Heinish, it's, 
his fighting style is really all in his movements. Like he he moves a lot. His cardio seems to de- seems to be decent, but technically he doesn't really seem to be all there. Uh, before the Gerald Mearshart fight, though, I do believe he went over to Thailand to get some work over there with Tiger Muay Thai, um, and, and it seemed to translate as he went out there and obviously knocked out Gerald Mearshart. Um, my my question though is how does it work with the rest of his game if the fight go, does go longer too and i think brendan allen being the bigger guy here too kind of gives the advantage a little bit more to allen you know we're talking about a 511 ian heinish with a 72 inch reach uh whereas brendan allen on the other hand 6-2 with the 77 inch reach he is a big guy for the well uh for the middleweight division very very big guy for the middleweight division so that that's definitely going to have a little bit of a factor here uh I think that the confidence in Brendan Allen's hands is probably what uh, would allow him to be a much better fighter. Obviously, he's on a great streak right, great streak right now, and obviously he he was working over there at Rufus Sport, so that was big for him too. But what we've noticed, if you go to his Instagram page, is that he's actually been training down at Sanford MMA for the last several weeks. So getting different looks, there's a huge uh, plot of, uh, of, of of fighters there that are in high-level leagues in 1FC and the UFC in Bellator. So Sanford MMA is definitely producing a lot of high-level talent. And I think he really went down there to, you know, get a better look or, or get better looks, different opponents, you know, different types of skill sets and go in there and, and try to up his game. Uh, I'm sure he's still over there with the Rufus Sport guys too, but uh, at least for the majority of this camp, it looks like he's been down there in Florida getting work with uh, Henry Hooft and that team. So uh, I think that's nothing but positive for him. Ian Heinrich, on the other hand, it looks like he's over there in Vegas getting some work at Extreme Couture. Um, you know, that that seems to be his base right now. Uh, so so that's just the, the, the coaching tip uh, on the side there. I would have to give this slight advantage to Brendan Allen for possibly getting better looks uh, down there in Florida. Um, I wonder how much confidence they've been able to instill in his striking too because again, like I said a little bit earlier, I think that's where he needs to polish up a little bit more to be able to... to um you know, uh, to be a little bit more dominant. Obviously, he does his best work when he's on the ground. If he's able to get the fight there, he should be able to have some success with Ian Heinish, who we have seen submitted in the past by Marcus Perez back in LFA. Um, but otherwise, you know, we have seen him take him down, not with relative ease, but not the, the, the not the hardest either. You know, we saw Derek Brunson get him down. We saw uh, Omar Yakhmetov get him down. And I think Brendan Allen would also be successful in getting Heinish down if that's where he wants to go. But the longer that this is on the feet, you got to think it, it, it kind of serves Heinish a little bit more advantage if it is on the feet. We'll see him kind of, you know, jumping around, hopping around on his tippy toes, running in every now and then with a, a couple shots to try to land. But I think that's where Brendan Allen is going to try to clinch onto Heinish and try to drag this fight to the ground. Um, I do lean with the grappler more often than not. Uh, and the guy with the better grappling, in my opinion, here is Brendan Allen, especially when it comes to the jiu-jitsu realm. Uh, I think he'd have success with kind of holding Heinish down and, and you know, getting the better of the transitions, possibly getting his back, you know, controlling some time there as well, too. Um, Heinish, I'm, I still have a little bit of questions on, you know, uh, we did see him have success in that third round against Amari Yakmanov later in the round, but there is still some question marks as to why he was getting hit as much as he is. Uh, he is hittable for sure. That, that's something that we have to notice. Uh, but 
I don't know, man. This is a very, very tough fight. Uh, I absolutely agree with the pick'em line here. I don't know if I'll even be betting this fight. I do lean on the Brendan Allen side. Like I said, I do think we'll see some more developments from him. I think a lot of people are going to put flack on his fight with Kyle Delkis, you know, going a full three rounds with the UFC newcomer, uh, and then obviously giving up that third round the way that he did. But that's not Heinish's game. He's not going to, you know, be controlling Brendan Allen from his back in the third round uh, like that. Um, I think Allen does have solid cardio too. Heinish has some good cardio too. He was working over there in Colorado for the most part, but now obviously he's down in Vegas. Um, yeah, I, this this is a tough fight. This is going to be a pass for me all in all. Um, you know, it would. I, I'm really looking for glaring spots for me in terms of guys I really want to bet on, and this fight is just just a toss up. Like the Feely and Mitchell fight, I did have a good feel on on Andre Feely there. And, uh, you know, I was happy with getting that the slightly plus money there. But uh, moving forward, I don't know if I'd take a shot on a fight that I see as that close anymore. And this is one of those fights that's super, super close for me. So I like Brendan Allen. I think he's going to, you know, him being the bigger guy. Hopefully we see some improvement in his stand-up. Even if he just has, you know, simple basics, one, twos down the middle, I think that would be very effective against a guy like Ian Heinish, who moves a lot, isn't super technical himself. Uh, but if he's able to stifle him on the end of a job and of his uh his two uh i think that would really demoralize Ian heinrich so um I, i'm going with alan hoping that we see some more improvement on the stand-up but he should get the better of the the ground as well too if we see it get there and i think he's strong enough to kind of drag this to the ground or even you know get this to a clinch position up against the cage where heinrich gives up his back and then we see kind of alan you know jump on the back or something or even just drag this fight to the ground as best as possible but yeah i like brendan allen i think he gets it uh probably a decision just more control time uh Heinish is kind of durable from what I say too I wouldn't be surprised either if we do get a Brendan Allen submission I'm not completely ruling that out but I do think we'll see Brendan Allen get this via via decision just through control you know the grappling the jiu-jitsu I think that's where we see this fight play out for the majority of the time so I'm going with Brendan Allen uh via decision Hani Barcelos versus Khalid Taha, we got minus 325 on Harney Barcelos and plus 250 on Khalid Taha. Let's start off with Taha, who's coming off a victory over Bruno Silva uh, back at UFC 243 in October. So we're talking about over a year since he's been out of the cage, and he was actually scheduled to fight Jack Shore uh, this weekend. However, Jack Shore pulls out and steps on Barcelos, uh, in my opinion, just as tough, if not tougher, of a matchup than Jack Shore. Uh, so Taha is on a two-fight winning streak. He did make his UFC debut on short notice against Nad Naramani at featherweight, which is not his weight class. Uh, and we saw the absolute strength and size advantage of Nad Naramani come into play there as he was able to pretty much drag Khalid Taha down as often as he wanted, clinch him up against the cage, pretty much overpower him the entirety of that fight. Um... Then when we saw him at his true natural weight class in the UFC, he knocked out Boston Salmon in 25 seconds. Beautiful combination. And then uh, Bruno Silva, uh, that's a fight where the second round, he pretty much got held down the entire time. And then in the third round, it seemed like Bruno Silva's gas tank started to catch up to him. And, uh, you know, there, there was a uh, unfortunate exchange uh, that let Bruno Silva almost give up his back, almost give up the rear naked choke. He spins, and then Kali Taha locks up the arm triangle choke. Beautiful finish with two minutes left in the fight. <clears throat> 
um, if that had gone to a decision, we probably would have seen it go uh, given to Kali Taha, as I believe, I think he won the first round. Um, it was definitely a second round for Bruno Silva, but the way things were going in that third round, it was definitely a Taha round. But now with Hany Barcelos, I think he's finding a guy that's much more dangerous. Let's talk about the skills of Taha specifically, though. I think he has solid striking it seems like more often than not he wants to go out there and just try to knock you out uh you know if the submission comes the submission comes just like you know two out of his last four fights he was able to pull off submission victories but more often than not you try to see you see him going out there and try to impose as well on the feet trying to wing big shots or solid leg kicks and try to get you out that way um that that's not going to work at the higher level in the ufc and unfortunately for him he's already touching the higher level in harney barcelos Barcelos is one of those guys that I truly believe is going to be in the top five, top ten of their division if they're a little bit more active. Um, you know, other guys that I think of that are kind of similar like that are like Movzar Evluev, Demir Magulov, uh, Magomed Ankalaev. If these guys were more active, we would see them much closer to the title shots or at least title contention. And I truly believe that Hani Barcelos is right there um let's switch over to harney barcelos he is on a, a four fight winning streak within within the ufc but in his career overall he's on an eight fight winning streak he's only lost one fight ever to a guy named mark dickman uh where he lost via submission in the second round but since then he's picked up wins over notable names like bobby moffitt um that was pre-ufc for both guys dan morritt uh, again, I believe that was pre-UFC for both guys. And then he steps into the UFC, knocks out her Holaba in a wonderful fight where we got to showcase, where he got to showcase pretty much all sort, uh, all sides of his game. But the uppercut at the end was a beautiful finish for him. Uh, Kurt, uh, Chris Gutierrez, he choked him out. Uh, Carlos Watson choked him out too. That was actually a fight where he was supposed to fight Saeed Nurmagomedov that night. Nurmagomedov pulls out, Watson steps in on short notice. Unfortunate short notice fight for him. And then uh, we do see Barcelos eventually go out there and fight uh, Saeed Nurmagomedov and get the decision victory there. Uh, he was actually supposed to scheduled. He was scheduled to fight Cody Stamen back in March before the whole COVID thing hit. That would have been a great fight for him to actually like burst onto the top 15, get a solid victory, if he was able to get past Stamen, that is. Get a solid victory there and really showcase uh, what kind of fighter he is. But unfortunately, here he is now against Kali Taha, who in my opinion is a little bit of a step back from Saeed Nurmagomedov. But during these COVID times, it's interesting to, uh, to see how these guys react. Um, so Taha was actually supposed to fight Jack Short, like I said. So I find it kind of interesting that Hani Barcelos was more than willing to jump in on short notice here um, since, you know, like, like he's a high-level fighter. It's not often that you see high-level fighters take uh short notice fights like this like another one that really kind of caught me off guard is when Robbie Lawler stepped in uh on short notice I believe to fight uh Neil Magny like the, those types of fighters it's very shocking to see them step in on short notice again especially with Hani Barcelos who in my opinion is just knocking on the top 15 top 10 door now to step in and fight uh, a guy in Kali Taho who has in my opinion a very minimal path to victory in terms of trying to knock out Hani <clears throat> And I truly believe that we'll see Hani, uh, you know, once again, just like the Kurt Holobaugh fight, showcase uh, of a diverse skill set. I think the Kurt Holobaugh fight is kind of the closest resemblance to how this fight might look, where we'll see Hani Barcelos kind of, you know, use his Muay Thai, try to uh, fade uh, or try to get uh, Kali to think that this is going to be a stand-up fight. And then he goes out there and pulls off, a, you know, a takedown of some sort. Uh, I love his takedowns. I love his Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as well, too. 
Barcelos is pretty much as close to a full package as we get for an MMA fighter. And I truly think that he has all the skills to go out there and capture that strap. The only issue here, unfortunately for him, though, he's 35 years old. So if he wants to get it done, now is the time. Uh, he'll be 36 in May of next year. So the clock is ticking on him. So he's really going to have to go out there and get, uh, you know, get moving and get these fights under his belt. Concerning that Taha is about eight years younger than him, so that's something to keep in mind. But you know, we haven't seen any signs of slowing down for Hani Barcelos um, until we see that. I'm I'm gonna be on his train. Yeah, he's minus three twenty five here, and uh, I'd say he's more of a parlay piece than playing him straight. Uh, I I personally like him to to give us better value on any other spot on the card that we're looking at. Uh, if there's any other fight that you want a little bit more value on, uh, you know, Barcelos, in my opinion, is a solid spot to go out there and parlay with. But, uh, you know, you don't see much uh, in resistance from Kali Taha when it goes to him fighting wrestlers. And I'll give him a, a, the benefit of the doubt in that fight against Nad Naramani, as I truly believe that he was just out strength. Uh, he was just out of his weight class in that fight, so that's unfortunate. But the Bruno Silva fight, that second round, you know, looked very sketchy for uh, Taha. And I think that Barcelos will be able to do the same, if not worse, uh, to Kali Taha if he had gotten him to the ground. So I like Barcelos to win this fight. I could see him getting a finish as well, too, maybe a second or third round sub. Uh, but yeah, I really like him. I hope he's in good shape, especially with him taking it on short notice. I don't see why he would take it on short notice if he wasn't in shape, uh, especially considering the run that he's on right now and how close he is, especially with him originally scheduled to fight Cody Stamen, who was a ranked opponent at the time. Uh, you got to think that uh, Barcelos knows he's near the top, so uh, he's got to be in shape to go out there and fight Kali Taha. So I'm going with Barcelos. I think he gets it done probably second or third round uh, submission. Uh, but yeah, I love Barcelos in the spot. And I can't wait to see him grow. So once again, I got Hany Barcelos via submission. Andre Arlovsky versus Tanner Bozer. We got minus 255 on Bozer and plus 215 on Andre Arlovsky. And uh, this is an intriguing fight just based on both of their styles. Uh, considering how volume heavy these guys are in terms of the amount of you know, how much they move and how much um, they're able to really cover the cage, especially at heavyweight. Um, so let's start off with Andre Arlovsky. Like, crazy, the, the the type of career that Andre Arlovsky has had. You know, people were ready to write this guy off all the way back in 2011 when he suffered, what was it, three, four straight losses, three of them getting pretty much brutally knocked out. Uh, and then in that amount of time, he was able to put together four straight wins, uh, you know, he had a no contest sprinkled in there against Tim Sylvia for an illegal soccer kick. Then he went to WSOF, fought Anthony Johnson at heavyweight, which was so weird uh, that Anthony Johnson was willing to go all the way up there. Lost the decision there, then was able to string together two straight wins and found himself back in the UFC, where he was able to go on a four-fight winning streak over Brennan Schaub, Bigfoot Silva, Travis Brown, and then Frank Mir. Uh, and he was pretty much one fight away from a title shot until he ran into Stipe Miocic, who then went on to get a title shot against Fabrizio Verdum and claim the heavyweight title. So just think about if he went out there and actually beat Stipe Miocic. You're talking about Andrei Arlovsky getting a title shot in 2016. I don't think a lot of people would have predicted that you know, back in 2011 when people were just telling this guy to already retire. 
but here he is, you know. So after that Stipe Miocic loss, he, he went on a five-fight losing streak, managed to pull up two decision victories over Stefan Struve and Junior Albini, then lost four straight, well, three technically, considering that Walter Harris tested positive for steroids, um, and that fight got changed to a no contest. And now in his last three, he's 2-1. and one. You know, he had a pretty much a picture-perfect performance against Ben Rothwell, where he went out there and outstruck him by... A large amount. I just want to confirm that number because I remember seeing it and thinking, I was like, wow, it was it was that much. But once you really watch the fight, you truly see it. He outstruck him 152 to 70. So more than doubled uh, the output that was coming back from Ben Rothwell's side. Then the Jerzinho Rosenstrike fight, we know what happened there. Jerzinho just has renegade bombs in his hands. And, uh, you know, he landed that beautiful counter left hook that pretty much face planted Andre Arlovsky 30 seconds into the fight. And then after that, went out there and beat a, you know, up and coming prospect in Philippe Lins, who a lot of people were confident in and who was also a minus 200 favorite going into that fight. So that's something to keep in mind there. Um, you know, Arlovsky showed in that fight, though, that he can still hang with some of these guys that don't necessarily have the knockout power to get him out of there quickly and even with that said you got to you know look into his his chin uh durability so the last time he was knocked out before jazinho rosenstrike was francis and ganu but since then uh so that was 2017 january and it took until uh just close to three years later for him to get knocked out again and he fought some heavy punches in between that amount of time as well and then in the philippe lens fight he showed a great amount of durability and took some huge shots from philippe lens but he was still in it and you know pretty much ready to fight for that full 15 minutes and still came out with a decision victory there so he looked good in that fight you know he still mixes it up well he moves well especially at his current age of 30 what is it oh sorry 41 i should say i don't even know why i said 30 but um 41 years old at heavyweight to like be moving as much as he is to be as flexible as he is you know still getting leg kicks up there like it's nothing uh moving well leg kicking as well not just it's it's not just all hands when he's just crashing forward with hands it's just not hands he still has kicks that he likes to back it up with try to st- switch it up with um it's pretty obvious that he likes to keep most fights on the feet so this is pretty much a, a tailor-made matchup for him in terms of you know going in there with somebody else who's you know pretty keen on keeping the fight on the feet uh but uh, yeah arlovsky has really you know still impressed me and a lot of people did not think he'd be fighting in 2020 let alone 2021 coming right up that he's still going to be you know up there in the the heavyweight division and having some good performances and pulling off victories over guys that are much younger than him who seem to you know they were favorites going into that fight so this tanner bozer fight you know let's talk about tanner bozer a little bit who's you know only a couple fights into his ufc career uh started off with a victory over daniel spitz then lost to cyril gunn who you know that that that's a tough fight to go with because cyril gunn is pretty much He's pretty much Tanner Bozera, but but much more explosive, much more volume, much more power. So it's uh you know it was a tough test for Tanner Bozera to go out there and get a victory there. Then we see Tanner Bozera go out there and knock out Philippe Lins after he lost to um, Andre Arlovsky, I believe. Yeah, that was only about a month and a half afterwards for Philippe Lins, where he got knocked out by Tanner Bozera. And then he goes out there and finishes Rafael Peso with a beautiful. Uh, it was like a. A punch that kind of pretty much landed in Pacewell's eye and uh, rendered him defenseless. He dropped to the ground and we saw Tanner Bozer go out there and uh, pretty much ground and pound him to a finish halfway through the second round. Now here with Andre Arlovsky, I think a lot of people are going to be banging on Tanner Bozer to go out there and win this fight via uh, inside the distance. There are no current lines on that prop, uh, but I personally like the, the decision prop a little bit more. But with that said, it's it's still a close fight, you know. I, can't, I don't mind the minus 250 line. I still think that Bozer does win. You know, his 
consistency and and willingness to go out there and continuously look for leg kicks really allows him to open up his hands and the rest of his uh, work. You know, whether it's the jab to the body and then coming with the overhand right afterwards, but the leg kicks are 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 the main goal for his game plan, in my opinion. I think he's going to be very successful with that here against Andrei Arlovsky. Again, Arlovsky is uh, likes to move a lot, has good footwork, uh, but I think that you know if Bozer targets those legs nice and early, he should be able to slow down Arlovsky a little bit and really start to do work with his hands. I am buying into the durability of Arlovsky, which is why I would rather go with Bozer to win by decision rather than inside the distance. And Bozer isn't, you know, he's not notorious for actually getting finishes. He's he's more of a decision guy. Um, you know, he he does have a, a win via leg kicks that took almost four rounds of work to actually get that finish, uh, keep in mind. But then obviously the Philippe Lenz was a little bit of an outlier for him to land such a beautiful shot. It was an overhand right, right to the just back of the ear of Philippe Lenz that put him out. Uh, uh, you know on queer street and then we saw him go out there and uh you know put his hands together beautiful combination to finish that fight and then the Rafael peso one i think it was just a like a, a bullseye shot with that left hook that he landed right on the eye of Rafael peso that pretty much rendered him defenseless and then he was able to get the ground pound there but I don't think that people should buy into the the quick finishes of Tanner Bozer uh, going into this Arlovsky fight because I do think that Arlovsky, you know, he he moves a lot better than these guys. I think Arlovsky throws a little bit more than Philippe Lenz does as well. So that's something that Bozer is going to have to worry about here. But Bozer, in my opinion, throws a little bit more than Philippe does. Uh, he sets his shots, shots up very well. Uh, a lot of people are saying that he should go down a light heavyweight just based on his size and the fact is that you know he cuts no weight to get to heavyweight and he seems like roughly only 20 or so pounds away from that uh from that uh the the light heavyweight limit so he weighed in at 235 against Rafael Pesoa 235 against Philippe Lenz as well too uh he was 246 against this against but it seems like he's slowly starting to come down in weight Another guy that this kind of reminds me of is Chris Dalkis, who won a couple of weeks ago. You know, he is slimming the hell down and it's definitely working out for his speed and his movement. So I think Tanner Bowser is kind of taking the same type of approach. Maybe not go down to 205, but use the lack of weight that you have and use the, the, the speed advantages that you get from the lack of weight and uh, try to, you know, go out there and, and have solid performances against your opponents. So again, Arlovsky, uh, makes fights closer than they should be hence why he won that Philippe Lenz fight but I think that Bozer has a better overall game than Philippe Lenz again centered around the leg kicks which allows him to open up his hands and I truly think that's going to be for the, the key here for Tanner Bozer um yeah, I, I like Bozer to win this fight by decision. I think he has a solid shot here. Minus 250, I don't mind that spot. I think he's a solid parlay piece, if anything. Um, maybe take the shot on him straight up at minus 250. Not a bad idea either. But again, Arlovski does make fights a little bit closer than they are. Uh, but I truly believe that Bozer has all the chops to to make it not as close as uh, Arlovski has did has done with like the Philippe Lenz fights or any of the other fights in his past. So... I'm going with uh, Tanner Bozer to win this fight via decision, and uh, this is a solid spot for him to get a, a you know a legit name under his belt, um, and yeah, really really announce himself in the heavyweight division as well, uh, and and distance himself a little bit more from that zero gone loss that he t- that he took uh, in his second fight in the UFC. So lastly, once again, I'm going Tanner Bozer to win this fight via decision. Time for the main event. We got the returning Tiago Santos, who hasn't competed since he fought John Jones for the title and lost a split decision back at UFC 239, I want to say it is. Yeah, 239. Uh, so it's been over 50 months since we've seen him uh, compete close to 16 months. He's going up against the ever-tested 
and ever-aging, never-aging, I should call it, Glover Teixeira. Uh, let's go over the odds real quick. It's minus 220 for Thiago Santos, plus 180 for Glover Teixeira, who now finds himself on the better end of a four-fight winning streak, um, you know, beating the young guns, if you want to call it that, Carl Roberson, Iwan Kutilaba, Nikita Krilov, and then Anthony Smith last time around in a fight where complete beatdown after that, uh, you know, pretty much the midway point of that second round. Um so I am recording this on the Thursday before fight week. So the odds may have shifted at this point in time. And I did put a poll out there uh, to get a better grasp of what the, the, the public is thinking when it comes to this fight or who at least they think is going to win this fight. And uh, let's go over that poll real quick. So it's been close to 24 hours since I put it out. And in terms of the results... Uh, close to 200 votes. We got nine minutes left in the in the poll, which is hilarious. But close to 200 votes. We got 70% for Tiago Santos and or 30% for um for Glover Teixeira. And uh, I'm just quickly retweeting it out there to see if I can get any more by the time this this breakdown finishes, since we got eight minutes left in it. But uh, yeah, let's go over Tiago Santos first and foremost. So like I said, he's coming off a loss to John Jones, a split decision loss, a very close fight, uh, a fight that, you know, not a style that not a lot of people predicted him to go in there with. You know, that's a fight where I believe I had John Jones inside the distance as my main play. And it was probably one of the most infuriating uh, performances that you could ever see. Uh, especially from somebody that considers themselves to be the GOAT. And I understand wanting to go out there and kind of just sling it out in, you know, your opponent's uh, realm to kind of just show, you know, showboat a little bit more. You know, John Jones was saying he wanted to go out there and just like compete in the Muay Thai realm to, you know, out Muay Thai a Muay Thai fighter. And that's kind of been his, you know, MO for a lot of his performances, you know, going out there and grappling against Chosun or going out there and just uh, even grappling against uh, Daniel Cormier as well. He wanted to show off that he could take him down. Um, but when you see a fighter as hurt as Thiago Santos, you know, we know that Thiago Santos tore his ACL in that fight, absolutely butchered his knee, yet John Jones is still going out there making this fight a lot closer than it should have been. If I'm not mistaken, I believe it was the second, maybe third round where we saw Thiago Santos start to limp and start to hobble a bit on that knee. And that's, you know, it was pretty evident that John Jones was aware of that as well. Um, you know, Jones went for a takedown in the first round, but never decided to go to the grappling after that because I think a lot of people are um, convinced that if John Jones decided to get that fight to the ground, he was more than likely going to be able to get the finish there, whether it's ground and pound or a submission of some sort. Um, but he just didn't decide to go to it. And we saw a pretty level-headed Thiago Santos considering the fact that his knee was torn up. You know, we still saw him throwing leg kicks out there, still saw him throwing those blitzing combinations, but he was a little bit more reserved than we're used to seeing him. You know, in the Jimmy Manuel fight, we saw him drop and rock Jimmy Manuel pretty much right off the bat and just go guns blazing. That's kind of what his style is. But he, we saw, even in the Jan Bohovic fight, we saw him a little bit more cal calculated, not really going guns blazing or anything like that, knowing that it could potentially go five rounds. But luckily for him, we saw him get the finish 39 seconds into that third round. And that was a great performance. And in my personal opinion, that's probably the best performance that we've seen from him. Uh, the, I, I say that because in the John Jones fight, yeah, we saw a good performance from him. But I also think that it's the, the, the diminishing talent of John Jones that we were seeing in that fight too. Just as we saw him go to a close fight with Anthony, well, close-ish fight for with Anthony Smith. Even how we saw him go with a close fight with Dominic Reyes. And then when we saw Dominic Reyes go out there and fight Jan Blahovic, we saw him get put out and completely styled on for the majority of that fight up until the point he got finished. 
So I think we might see the same thing here with Thiago Santos. And not to add to the fact that this is going to be the first time we're seeing Thiago Santos come back after a huge and pretty severe uh, knee injury. Like I said, that ACL injury, it can hobble and really debilitate a lot of people's careers after they come back from them. I'm trying to think off the top of my head, one of the, the fighters that it's happened to. But there are a ton of fighters that, you know, They've had severe knee injuries and they've never come back really looking the same. And this is a tough test to come back to against Glover Teixeira, who's, you know, he's going to be there. He is a durable fighter. A lot of people want to share on the fact that, you know, Glover Teixeira is a chinny fighter. He hasn't been knocked out in nearly three and a half years when uh, uh, Alexander Gustafsson finished him in the fifth round of a very competitive fight um you know since then like glover like i said glover Teixeira has looked pretty damn fucking good uh carl roberson rocked him trying to get him to the ground obviously we saw glover Teixeira uh overcome that and then get uh, carl roberson down and all within three minutes and 21 seconds he got rocked uh took roberson down took his uh took full mount pretty much immediately and then eventually sunk, sunk in that arm triangle choke beautiful finish there and then iwan kutilaba you know had uh, a little bit of success with that spinning back fist, uh, landed perfectly on Glover to share. Glover rocked a bit, didn't get dropped, but he did get rocked. And then we saw him come back and, and you know, finish off Iwan Kutilaba in that second round too. The Nikita Krilov fight was a taxing fight. We saw that a lot of it play out in the grappling realm. And we saw more than often than not, Glover to share getting the better of the positions uh, against a much younger Nikita Krilov. And then in the Anthony Smith fight, he almost pulled off like a, a Homer Simpson type approach where for that first seven and a half minutes, he allowed Anthony Smith to, well, he didn't allow. Uh, I'll give Anthony Smith the benefit of the doubt there where he was just, you know, landing pretty much at will. He was a much quicker fighter. One, two crisps down the middle. His jab was looking really good. His leg kicks were looking really good too. But then once that, that activity started to catch up with Anthony Smith, there was no way he was going to be able to go that pace for 25 minutes. And, you know, it's going to take a lot more than that to put away Glover Teixeira. Um, once that started to catch up to Anthony Smith, that's where we saw Glover Teixeira start to, you know, take off. Yeah, he's a little bit rudimentary with the striking in terms of, you know, just having a, a straight right, a left hook, and sometimes a rear uppercut, but it's effective at times. You know, when guys are immobile and guys are tired of trying to beat the shit out of Glover Teixeira, Glover Teixeira turns it on and he starts to make these guys drown. He starts to make them swim and then they start to drown. And that's what Glover Teixeira is known for. He just turned 41 years old yesterday, so I believe it's October 28th, he turned 41 and put out an instagram video the guy looks great he looks in phenomenal shape um and it you know luckily for for these older guys the 205 and heavyweight are kind of divisions where you can be the older guy and you can still go out there and get some victories um you know it's middleweight and down where you really have to be in your your youthful peak in my opinion to be at the top of the weight class but luckily for glover Teixeira, this is a perfectly timed fight for him to go out there and face tiago santos who again like i said is coming off a very significant um uh injury um that acl injury is just not not good um they were scheduled a couple times post covid now to to fight uh glover tested positive for covid uh, in their september fight santos tested positive for covid in their october fight and now here they are once again a month later hopefully knocking on wood they don't uh you know they don't uh contract the covid uh in this amount of time between the breakdown and the fight actually happening but I love, I love, love, love Glover Teixeira at this price. And it seems like his price is only going to continue to get better. Um, you know, Thiago Santos, minus 220 coming off a severe knee injury. Um, and I think, like, it's kind of like the... Um, it's kind of like the Dominic Reyes and Jan Bohovic fight. I think a lot of people are over overstating how good 
Dominic Reyes was and how how good Tiago Santos was because of how close of fights they had with John Jones. I kind of understand that narrative, but again, like John Jones just doesn't really seem to be putting his foot on the on the gas like he used to during the you know pre-USADA, if you even want to call it that. Maybe it's the the lack of testosterone or drugs that are in his body now that are making him fight closer to the competition that the two hundred five or closer to the level of competition that the two hundred five division is at. But Glover is always going to be there. He's always going to be chugging along. We know he's fully there. We know he can take a shot. He got dropped in that Carl Roberson fight. But again, like like I said, the last time he got finished was three and a half years ago against Alexander Gustafson. And Tiago Santos hasn't notoriously been like a one-punch knockout power kind of guy. Like, it's an overwhelming amount of strikes that he has to land on you to really get you out of there. He's not like, dink and you know sleeping guys that's not what's happening and i think that glover could to share could handle whatever tiago santos is going to be throwing his way and again this is five rounds this is this is glover's realm like he could go that full five rounds he could you know make tiago santos swim and drown i'm fully you know i'm very very um confident in glover here i love him at the dog odds and i love that his odds continue to get better and one more thing about tiago santos um his fight against jimmy manua rocks him right off the bat and what does jimmy manua do he takes him down with relative ease too let's not forget about that it but obviously it was a little bit harder for him to keep him down but i expect if glover to share against tiago santos down he has probably one of the best top pressure top games top jiu-jitsu games in the game especially at 41 years old you still see him floating above guys passing guards um you know taking backs uh trying to stay one step ahead of his opponents whenever they're trying to you know shift in the nikita krilov fight he had a beautiful back take like it's crazy how mobile this guy still is on the ground at 40 and 41 years of age and i still think he's going to be able to you know he will be able to control tiago santos on the ground and i think he could make tiago santos start to panic start to stress out start to gas out and then we see T- uh, Glover Teixeira really start to take over in the later rounds but I love Glover in this spot I love him by submission I can't wait to see what that prop is and especially the more money that continues to come in on Tiago Santos here the more confident I'm going to be in Glover Teixeira so I'm personally waiting like I it's it's taken the best of me right now not to pull the cl- uh, trigger on uh, Glover Teixeira at plus 180 I can get him at plus 182 currently at bookmaker I'm just going to sit back. I truly believe that we'll see that plus 200 line at minimum, and that's where I'm going to take my shot. I'm taking at least a two-unit shot here on Glover to share it. I'm happy to share that with you guys right now, but I'm, I'm more than happy there. And considering the, the poll uh, results, so we got final results, 218 votes, 72% of people are on Tiago Santos, and 28% of people are on Glover to share it. To me... That makes me think that the odds are slowly going to get better on our guy Glover Teixeira. So I'm just going to wait it out and see what kind of line we get. But I love Glover in this spot. He's truly going to go out there and, and you know, remind people that uh, Tiago Santos is not a guy to bet on at this minus 220, possibly closing at minus 250 spot, coming off a major surgery. Um, yeah, I, I love Glover here. So I'm taking Glover Teixeira, probably third, third round submission, maybe second round. I think he could get away with it too. But I love Glover um, to to win this spot. Um, yeah, like I said, Glover Teixeira by second or third round submission. And those are the breakdowns. I hope you guys enjoyed them. I uh, hope you guys can figure out what I made my lock of the night play. I'm not sure if I actually said it in the breakdown itself, but I'm I'm personally waiting for a couple lines to come out still. Um, 
yeah once again make sure you guys check out the patreon uh, the link is in the description below uh that really helps your boy out if you haven't subscribed already make sure you subscribe hit the like button drop a comment below regarding uh you know what your picks and you know if you disagree with anything that i had this week make sure you guys do that as well uh check me out on friday at 9 p.m eastern with the odds crew we're going to be doing the final a uh, final weigh-in live stream i'll be with my guys cody saftik mma prediction guru and just bleed mma and then lastly on fight days we're doing the mma lockcast live where i take all questions comments and concerns for the fights that are just about to go down so i like to do a fight day stream now get everybody revved up ready to go and maybe bring your bring some eyes to to some lines that people are overlooking too so make sure you guys join me off for of that your boy's busy i got a lot going on i'm trying to do all this for you guys try to make this a full-time thing the best way to help me do that is hopping on the patreon so once again it's in the description below make sure you guys hit that for me all right i'm done i'm out i'll see you guys friday on odds hq and then on fight day on my channel itself good luck on your bets this weekend i'll see you then